Once again, welcome everyone. In one of the suttas, the, the Buddha offers this image of the, the path. And it's, it's the image of uh, the Dharma being a raft, right? The, the raft that carries us across samsara, across the river or the flood of our suffering and discontent over to the other shore. Right, to the to the shore of freedom of awakening and the reason i want to bring this up is uh, i feel like this plane with perception it's a kind of raft it's a raft that does you know it carries us over that river that that flood of our suffering and discontent and if used skillfully, what I notice is that if, if it, it, um, it, it allows me to float above the suffering of my life or the challenges of my life rather than drowning in it. And for this evening around this theme that we've been exploring, what I'd like to share with you are some reflections about a particular kind of perception or view. And that's the view that you have or that we have of the river itself, of the challenges themselves in our lives. How do you view challenge in your life? How do you view suffering or stress in your life? What's the view or the perception that actually keeps you afloat rather than drowns you? I, I think it's a, an important question and also an important practice to have the malleability of how we perceive or view our struggles. And I also want to point out, I think it's important that there's a, a kind of particularity that comes with how we view it. One of the things that strikes me about how the Buddha taught is that so often in these, these discourses, at least that we find in, in the Pali Canon, the, these early scriptures of Buddhism, is the, the Buddha is so willing and he has a sensitivity to try to speak the language of the person he's speaking to. So for example, he's speaking to a musician. So he uses an analogy of a musical instrument. He's talking to a horse trainer. So what does he use an analogy about horse training? He comes across these young Brahmins and they're talking with each other about how to, how it can, how to become one, how to meet Brahma, or how to become one with God. So what does he talk about? Becoming one with Brahma and how to do that. I really appreciate this, this gift that he had of not just giving some kind of you know, rigid teaching, but how to, how to touch the hearts and minds of those in front of me, how to make it alive for their particularity and how they're particularly situated. And I mentioned this because I, I think, you know, the tradition that's been handed down to us in terms of Buddhism, we're given all these stories of these particular teachings or for these particular people. And as contemporary practitioners, we sometimes have to fill in the gap of imagine what's the teaching that's going to resonate for me and how I'm situated? What's my particular raft? How would the Buddha speak to me particularly? I think this is so important. 
And it ties in with this theme of playing with perception. And I think this is why it's so important so we can hear and get the view that's gonna really inspire us. And to remember, I, the first talk I gave around playing with perception, one of the points I wanted to make was that it's based on this idea that every moment of experience is co-created, right? Part of the creation of this experience right now is your mind. So the mind's co-creating experience. And I gave all kinds of examples about this, of how the mind's at play. Or in other words, our mind is in part shaping the world that appears to us. It's like the popular saying, I'm sure many of you know it. If a pickpocket meets a holy person, the pickpocket will see only their pockets. If that's your worldview, trying to steal from pockets, you're only gonna see pockets. That's what the mind does. It co-creates, it shapes the world that appears in front of us. And there's a power to this. This is especially what we explored on the retreat. How do you utilize this power of perception, or I'm using this in a, a broad way, this word perception. How do you utilize the stories that we bring to experience, the views that you bring to experience? And in particular, it's gonna be around tonight, around the stories you tell yourself about the challenges in your life, the struggles. And I wanna begin, like maybe, <laughs> Hopefully it's obvious. Have you noticed at least the views and stories that are not helpful for your struggles and challenges? <laughs> you notice those? What some of my favorite, you know, maybe we could we could share our favorite ones. What, what are some, some of my mind's favorite ones? This isn't supposed to be happening. No, <laughs> this is not supposed to be happening. Not this again, or it's like, why me? Why is this happening to me? What's up with this? For myself, I have not found those views to be very helpful. And maybe you know some of the views that can be around swimming around your own mind that really confine around struggle, around challenge. So what's the opposite? What are the ways to frame the challenges and struggles that inspire you, that inspire you to practice to engage in what's going on with your suffering. To be like, oh yeah, I, I want to engage in mindfulness and compassion and kindness and all the other parts of this path because of how I'm holding the suffering, how I'm holding the struggle, because of how I frame it, how I perceive it. So tonight what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be now just sharing with you different examples of different views of struggle, of suffering. And as I go through this, I, I invite you to get a sense of which ones resonate for you. And some might partially resonate for you, and then you have to fill in the rest. And others might not resonate for you at all. And then we're gonna come back to this. So we can have this malleability of perception, of view, and to harness that for our, our path and our practice. So first view, view number one or perception number one. And it's just gonna be one phrase. It's a phrase from 
this Zen master, Asecho Juken, who was a 10th century, 11th century Zen master. He was the compiler of a, a famous Zen book called the Blue Cliff Record. And he had this, to me, a, a, a potent phrase. He said, here in the dragon's jaws, many exquisite jewels. Here in the dragon's jaws, many exquisite jewels. So first to get a, a sense of this, I invite you just to, to slow down and reflect, what are the dragons in your life right now? What are the challenges? What are the struggles? What are those? Maybe bring them to mind. And then it's asking, what are the many exquisite jewels that you find in the jaws of that dragon? In those challenges, in those struggles? Can you find the jewels? For me, what used to be a, a big dragon in my life was self-judgment. Just the, uh, my mind was so good at being so deeply critical of myself. And it's because I really didn't like myself and at times hated myself. It definitely felt like a kind of dragon in my life. And yet when I look back at that struggle, so many exquisite jewels in there. Like going through that struggle has allowed me to understand the suffering of others from a per first person experience, like, oh, I, I get that now in my own way. Oh, how confining it can be and how convincing that mind can be. That's a precious jewel to understand. And I don't think I would have understood kind of the, the in deep importance of kindness and compassion toward myself without facing such a dragon. It just would have sounded like a a nice practice. But kindness and compassion for myself was in, in some ways a survival tool during that time. It wasn't just nice, it was an exquisite jewel. And that's what I found in the dragon's jaws. Here in the dragon's jaws, many exquisite jewels. What will those jewels be for you in your struggle? And for me, like this perception, this view, if I can just remember it when a struggle arises, oh, 
there are many jewels here and I'm, I'm down to look into the jaws of the dragon and find them. I know they're here. And as practitioners, they're definitely there. It's like our practice, our practice forms those precious, precious jewels as long as we're willing to find them. What would it be like to deeply hold that frame around a struggle that you're faced with? Or another frame that I, I feel is uh, so closely tied to this, it's intertwined and articulated so well by a, a short poem by Mary Oliver. She said, someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. It took me years to understand that this too was a gift. How is the box full of darkness in your life a gift? How can you come to realize that, to see that? Maybe that's a way of viewing or perceiving a struggle. Oh, this, this is a gift actually. How can it be? Or even one step further, I love this Tibetan saying, probably many of you have heard me use it because I, I love it so much, is to have a boldness to such a view. I don't know if I'm fully here with this saying, but I still love it. It goes, grant that I may be given appropriate difficulties and sufferings on this journey so that my heart may be truly awakened and my practice of liberation and universal compassion may be truly fulfilled. What would it be like to have that like, oh yeah, I, th this is the gateway. This is the gateway to freedom. And for me, I know, even if it doesn't last when I'm in the midst of a struggle or a challenge, especially the ones I really, really don't want, and often when I'm in a struggle, it's like, I don't want this struggle. I want this one that they talk about in the book, not this one. <laughs> I don't like this one. <laughs> if I can just get out in my heart, just the sense of yes. Oh, yes, this too is my practice. Oh, this too can deepen my, my spiritual path. And again, remember, what's important with all these is to get a sense if they resonate or not, if something comes alive or not, and to honor how these are resonating, because it's going to be different for different people of what resonates, what comes alive, what doesn't come alive, and to honor that. I want to point out when I was reflecting on this, it's a tricky thing to talk about because sometimes what I notice is that uh, 
when I bring my spiritual practice to a challenge, it feels like the view or frame arises out of the challenge. It's almost sometimes feels like the challenge gives me the view that I need. So it's not like I'm imposing it or that I come up with it, but it, it, it co-arises almost like, like when, when it's together with my practice, it's a gift that's given to me as this view. So I want to normalize that. That might be your process. Is it, it's not so much like you're, okay, I'm going to use this perception or this view, but it, it feels like it organically arises in some way. And I remember having this experience when I was on a, a longer retreat and someone who was close to me had passed away in a, a deeply tragic way. And I was in this space, what happens to me a lot on, on long retreat, my sleep gets uh, uh, heavily disrupted. My, it's always very disruptive sleep which some of you might know can really come with, with when mindfulness and samadhi starts to have a momentum to it. It just disrupts sleep a lot. Um, and I had a dream of her. And so here she was coming to visit me in my dream. And it was, it was a strange dream because I knew it was also partly a lucid dream because I knew I was dreaming and I knew that she was in my dream and I knew she was dead, but here she is. And it also had the flavor and some of you probably know this about dream cultures and this is the closest I got to this feeling of this is, is the dream, even though I knew I was dreaming felt just as real as waking reality. And many cultures hold dreams like that, that the dream world is just as real as waking reality, it's just different. So here she was, and she was just smiling at me. She said nothing. But it had such a deep emotional impact because there was something about her presence in the dream that was deeply haunting and inspiring. And both were there. I felt haunted and inspired. And even after the dream was over, because I was on retreat, so it felt like, it, and again, like my world of sleep and wake was so disrupted at this time and on the retreat. So it felt like I was still in this different space. And just that that uh, that encounter with her, it felt like she had. I know this is going to sound strange, but it, it, she had woven herself into my being in some way. It, it reminds me of this poem, even though I've always understood it before this experience differently, from W. S. Merwin. Merwin about loss. He said, uh, "Your absence." has gone through me like thread through a needle. Everything I do is stitched with its color. And maybe you know this experience around this particular flavor of suffering. It's like you look around in the house that you used to live with, live in with this person or the things you used to do with this person and what's so palpable 
is their absence. It's like it's stitched, that color is stitched through everything. Your absence is, is, is stitched that way. And so for me, the, the different view, and I wanna say how bodily this can be, was it felt like she was, her loss, not only her, but her loss was stitched into my being in some way. And also her smile, which I still don't completely understand. It's like I ingested her, like there was a sacrament that I had partaken, partaken of that, that was given to me, some kind of divine grace. So maybe you've experienced something like that, or if not, just having maybe something resonates about this openness to how our understanding of struggle can change. Our feeling of loss, our feeling of difficulty can weave itself into us in different ways and can change how we view it. And I think this comes when, when perception can be more malleable, when we don't, aren't lost in what I called in that first talk, a single vision, a single vision of the way things are. And to maybe at times even allow whatever that story is or view that helps you through a struggle to sometimes even be paradoxical. You know, there's, there's a image that comes from such a striking writer. Uh, uh, her name is uh, Simone Weil, kind of a philosopher writer. Uh, really uh, brilliant, unique woman who wrote quite a bit. Susan Sontag said of Simone Weil, one of the most uncompromising and troubling witnesses to the modern travail of the spirit. And she writes about, she was a, quite a spiritual religious person, kind of in a Christian context. And yet her struggle is that she felt so deeply separate from that which was divine for her. Something that plagued her is longing to be close to the divine, but feeling so deeply separate. And then there was a turn in her life and she said the really the turn, the way she described it was she started to realize that the feeling of separation was the link for her. Well, I feel separated from the divine or put in whatever you want to there. And it's the link. And she gave this image of uh, like a wall that you'd have between two prisoners. So two prisoners, they're imprisoned and there's a wall that's confining them. It's that which separates them. But then when they knock on the wall, it becomes the medium that links them. So that which separates, when utilized differently, connects them. Maybe there's a, a struggle in your life that's separating you in some way from yourself or from others. How is it the link? 
How is it the wall that you communicate with? How to allow that to maybe percolate through some of your struggles? Because then it becomes the raft that allows you to float over this world of suffering rather than to drown in it. I remember when I was a monk, I I went through such a dark time and there was such a, this period of such a deep sense of doubt in myself in the practice. And when I reflect back on it, it was this process of seeing that it started to become the link. It's like, oh, here's the doubt again. Oh, this this is my meditation. This is my life. This is what I need to be present with. And once I slowed down with it, it was like, oh, and it's also the gateway back into the Dharma for me. And it's a strange thing to reflect. It was my doubt that reconnected me to that which I was doubting. So the separation, the separation is the the link. So another view I want to share with you around suffering or struggle or perception. And it's funny, I, I, uh, when I reflected on this, I felt a little torn if I should share this or not. And one of the reasons is, is I'm sharing it because it's a view that I don't resonate with. And the reason I share it is because I, I realize it's important for our communities and ourselves that, that there's this allowing of different views and different approaches, and that we start to have a tolerance for that to really create real community. Because often what happens in community is that we all need to have the single vision of the things that work. And then if if we don't go along with that, then a lot of times you might even feel this in community. It's like, oh, you know, I have a different vision that kind of works for me, but you're never going to share it in the community (laughs) because it's the fear of a single vision. And I think so it's it's to bring some toler- tolerance to this and 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 I'm sometimes moved by the views or perspectives that really transform a person's life like. And please if someone somebody might know the story better than me, but I think it's from the book unbroken I think it, about the the man who was in a, a Japanese internment camp um, as a prisoner of war for a long time really horrific came back with serious PTSD. And what changed his view was going to see Billy Graham and becoming a Christian. His symptoms went away. And I love to share that. This is not the story I was thinking of. Because because to show the multiplicity what a cool thing that something opened up in his view of the world and himself. What's it like to be able to hold different views rather than there's just one single vision? The story I'd like to tell you, though, is about um, Garchin Rinpoche. I don't know if you've, if anybody knows Garchin Rinpoche, this uh, Tibetan Lama. He's, uh, he now resides actually in Arizona at... Um, in uh, outside of Prescott Valley, uh, Prescott, uh, Arizona. 
And if you've ever met him, he's he is an incredible person to meet. He really, you know, I'm, I'm not just saying this, but when he, he just emanates, I it's really unbelievable the kind of depth of compassion and kindness that he emanates. It is, it is, uh, it's just great to be around him. He's now in his late 80s, I think, but really an incredible human being. And and he spent 20 years in a Chinese prison camp, labor camp, and horrific. And the, many people died in the prison camp because of the conditions. And somebody asked him, you know, what's up with this, Archon <laughs> Rinpoche? What's up with this, Rinpoche? You know, you spent 20 years of your life in prison, and yet you are so beaming with joy and compassion. Like, how did you deal with that? How did you deal with the, the 20 years in uh, the, the labor camp? And this was the view that that took him through, which is not something I can relate to, but it's kind of more of a traditional Tibetan view of karma, not one that you find as much in, in early Buddhism. He, he said, he said, oh, it's important to realize that the suffering you're experiencing now is the result of karma, your past actions. To understand that already makes the suffering somewhat more bearable because you see that it does not come from the outside. Why am I experiencing suffering or why am I in this labor camp? It's because of the negative actions I did in the past. That's why I'm here. And so the other question that this interviewer asked Garchin Rinpoche is like, uh, many people would think if they spent 20 years in prison as you did, they consider that 20 years of their life had been taken away from them. And Garchin Rinpoche said, oh, no, 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 no. It, it wasn't a waste of time because it was a purification of so much karma that I accumulated. So it was really, really a great, for him, it was a great time. <laughs> he had met his root teacher there, Kempo Munsel. And, and somebody asked him, well, did you feel angry, angry or resentment towards uh, the Chinese? And he said, yeah, when I first went into prison, I was really, really angry. And I, I, tried to, I tried to make trouble. And I did hear that he did try to make trouble, which was to his own expense. But then Kempo Munsel, who was a, uh, a uh, his teacher in there, told me I shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> and I understood that it was just all the result of a karma, and I didn't get angry anymore. And I share this with you not to convince you that this is the view or story that's going to work for you. But sometimes when we find the view or the story or the perception that really resonates with our heart, it can carry us through really, really deep struggle when we give ourselves over to it. And then lastly, one last view, which again, I don't think is spoken so much in the insight meditation tradition, and that's why I want to share it. Because it's uh, something that you find in, in Buddhism, but uh, is often looked over. But some people find this really important for struggle and suffering. And that's this process of having a view or perception of entrusting yourself to something larger than yourself. For some people, when our challenges feel immense, 
beyond us, sometimes it's helpful to call upon a presence or a force that's larger than you. So for example, there are some practitioners that will call on Kuan Yin to help hold the immense suffering one is experiencing. And it feels relieving to be able to offer it over to something larger than me. Opening to something greater than myself. And in, in Buddhism, kind of the flowering of this that you find that I think is so, at least for me, poetically powerful is uh, Shin Buddhism, which uh, arose in Japan in the 12th, 13th, 13th century. Uh, Shinran, was the, Shinran was the founder of Shin Buddhism. And from his worldview, from his perception, he felt like at that time, since we had so far away from the original teachings, that it was impossible to touch freedom through what's called self-power. Jiriki is the Japanese word. Self-power or self-contrived power. And it's only through other power, tariki, is the Japanese word, the power of Amida Buddha, that one can free one's heart to actually depend upon Amida Buddha, the Buddha of the Pure Land, to be the raft that carries us over to the shore, other shore. And I, I share this just because so often many of us attracted to this kinds of kind of meditation can be so into G-Ricky into self-power. And don't get me wrong, I'm totally down for it. I love multiple visions. <laughs> I know this is heretical. And <laughs> I want to honor maybe the few people that find that they've had experiences of tariki, other power that carries them in times of challenge and to normalize that and to make space if that's something that resonates for you. Right? We don't need to get lost in a single vision of how all this unfolds. And yes, it's true, given Shin Buddhism, ultimately, Self-power and other power are synonymous, <laughs> which adds to the depth and complexity, I think, of that teaching. So what I am going to invite all of us to do now is we're going to take, um, let's take about 10 minutes. And during these 10 minutes, I'm going to invite you to do two things. One, just take a break. Make sure you, if you can, to get away from the screen. Move the body. Take care of the body during these 10 minutes. At the same time, though, I'm going to invite you to either take some notes with pen or pencil and paper or maybe type or maybe just in your mind. But sometimes it is good to write it down and to reflect on uh, a couple things. Maybe I'll put them in the, in the chat here. I figure this out. Some things to reflect on because we'll come back together to uh, explore these together. And you'll see this in the chat here to reflect on and make note of 
any view of a challenge in the past that you that you found helpful so maybe to reflect on past challenges or struggles and there was a kind of view or a story or perception that allowed you to float above it not of course it's still difficult when you're floating above it but not to completely drown in it or there might have been a, a view or a story I shared this evening that sparked something for you. And remember, it might have only been partially something of what I shared, and you need to vary it in some way. And to make note of that, because then we're going to come back into small groups and just take some time to articulate some of this in small groups. And it's just going to be listening to each other because something else might get evoked when you hear something from someone else. Or just hearing yourself speak, it can be really helpful for this process. So in light of this, let's come back at, uh, let's say, 24 minutes past the hour. So 7.24 Colorado, New Mexico time, and 9.24 East Coast time, and 6.24 California time. Okay, so I'll see you then. Okay, thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.